This is episode 32 of the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. My name is Matthew Bruff, and I'm a pastor and an author. And I'm really glad you've decided to listen in today. I was sick last week, and so there wasn't an episode last week. So I'm really glad that I'm getting over. <laughs> I actually lost my voice last week, so it was pretty hard to do a podcast when you lose your voice. Uh, but I'm getting over that uh, still a little bit. I have this lingering cold, um, so my voice might sound a bit deeper or different than usual. But I do appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen today. Today I'm doing a slightly different episode, and if you're a regular listener, you'll notice there wasn't the regular intro today. Um, that's just kind of marking that I'm doing something a little different for this episode and the next three, uh, so this one and two more, uh, three episodes, I'm going to be talking about letting God be present. And so there aren't any guests for these, uh, but I wanted to talk about this because part of the reason for starting this podcast, the main reason for starting this podcast, Spirituality for Normal People, is that I've never really liked this word, spirituality. Um, and I've just kind of been someone who's a practical kind of person, uh, just live what I kind of think is a fairly regular life and am not really usually seeking what other people might say are kind of spiritual. I'm, I'm doing air quotes as though you can see me, um, but spiritual experiences, um, although I have had experiences and encounters with God. Uh, I don't know, I almost shy away from those, even as a pastor, uh, and now an author of a couple of books about God and experiencing God. Um, it, all of this has kind of come from this place of just sort of n almost not trusting the spiritual experience or the language around spirituality that's often there. But it's funny because the more that I've delved into and done a whole bunch of interviews with people and delved into uh, spirituality and spiritual practices, the more I find that, um, well, there's not really anyone who's normal. I say that all the time, not that anyone's normal, but, but there's sort of this, um, maybe it's a myth or something. I know, I don't know who it's propagated by, but that spirituality has to be this sort of out there airy fairy kind of thing. Um, but most of the people that I've talked to, it's not. It's it's in the daily life. It's in everything that we do. And even down to a couple of weeks ago, we talked to uh, Caitlin Curtis, and she talked about doing the dishes and that being her time where she encountered God. And uh, and it's just in our day to day life. And we can do things. We can. We probably ought to do things like reading the Bible and praying and all of that. I, I believe in all of those things. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not that it's not that we're seeking this sort of out of body experience or something like that, that, um, that, that to talk about spirituality is not necessarily this, uh, this otherworldly kind of thing. It's a very earthly kind of thing. And actually Christianity, um, kind of values that, uh, contrary to lots of what people might say or think or believe about Christianity. Um, sometimes it can focus I think wrongly too much on an escape from earth to heaven when in fact a lot of the scripture is actually about you know God coming to earth and I mean that's the Jesus story is that God 
becomes a human being and lives among us. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, I'm kind of getting a bit off track of what this podcast is going to be about. Um, because mainly what I decided to do a while back was, um, I've written a book called let God be present. And, um, I thought, you know, there are people who are listening to this podcast and I really value you listening. Uh, so I thought, why don't I just read the book? And instead of doing an audio book for the book, I would just read the book for you and do that in three parts because the book is in three parts and just do that on the podcast. Um, and it, cause, cause this book really fits in well with what this podcast is about. Uh, let God be present in particular, the introduction is, uh, I share a little bit more about my own struggle with an encounter with God and what that, what that really is. And this book is not really about how to, uh, how to find God or how to experience God's presence. This book is, um, is maybe designed a little more to shake up your thinking about what God's presence really is and what that might mean. And so there are three parts. I'm, I'm going to just dive in in a minute and I've pre-recorded this, so it'll kind of switch to that, um, introduction in the book. But, um, just so you have a bit of orientation to the book as a whole, the three parts when we get there, there's a short introduction and then you'll hear part one today. Um, and then next week, uh, part two will come out and the week after that part three will come out. Uh, so today's, uh, the big chunk of today is going to be, uh, part one, which is titled God's presence, even when you might not want it. And it's a reflection on Exodus chapters 31 through 33. So each of the three parts, they are reflections on particular scripture passages. So they kind of follow through a particular scripture passage. So part two is a reflection on first Samuel chapter three, and that's titled tuning in and trusting God. And then part three is a reflection on Mark chapter four, verse 36 to 41. And what follows that story? And it is called after the storm. And then there's a, then there's a, there is a very short part four, which is just called, so what now? So that'll just get tacked on into the audio for part three. So that's kind of just your introduction to the book and sort of how it's laid out. Um, some of you listening might already have a copy of the book. Uh, you can get it on the website on spiritualityfornormalpeople.com and there's a books link there. Uh, you can get it on Amazon as well is the is the best place to get the book um either paperback or ebook ebook i think is 2.99 so that's uh, that's not a bad price might be 3.99 in canada 2.99 in the us uh and what else can i tell you oh yes if you um support me on patreon so you could support this podcast on patreon which is a third party website that allows uh, people who are creating things to ask for sponsors or or people to support them. Um, so I have a page there at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Matthew Bruff. So my whole name, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-B-R-O-U-G-H. And um, you can support the podcast. Uh, it will allow the podcast to continue and keep going and help pay for the hosting for the podcast because it does cost a little bit of money to do the hosting, but it'll also help me 
raise money for some new equipment, like a new microphone, <laughs> which I really need. Um, but uh, you can support for as little as $2 per month. But the reason I'm bringing this up today and kind of spending a bit more time on that is that if you support at $4 per month, I will send you a free paperback copy of Let God Be Present. So you can head over there, support at $4 a month, and you'll get a free paperback. Of course, you can get the paperback on Amazon for more than $4. Um, but yeah, if you do it through Patreon, I will send it to you. And I think... Think there are other there are other bonuses there too. So you can kind of look down on the right side and, and see like at different levels you get different things. So um because I've written other books too, and most of the bonuses are related to some of the books that you might be able to get. Alright, so that's uh that's my ad for today in our podcast. Mainly though, I just uh I really believe in this book and um and I've had some good feedback on it. But I hope I hope this is helpful for you, and uh, you know, feel free to go and get copies of it, or just enjoy the audio. And if you want to just come back to these uh, episodes, uh, feel free to do that because um, it's here just free for you uh, to enjoy and hopefully be helpful in your own walk with God. Um, and yeah, feel free to also reach out to me and uh, send me an email or leave a review on iTunes for for the podcast. Um, I would just love that, love hearing from people. All right, so we're going to dive in to the introduction, and then it'll follow. Uh, it'll be followed by part one of Let God Be Present. Thanks for listening today. The introduction to Let God Be Present. So much writing about God assumes that we want more of God, but I am not convinced that we all have that desire. Even as a pastor, I have not always wanted to be in God's presence. I remember singing the words of Psalm 42 when I was a teenager, and I always cringed, as the deer is still one of my least favorite songs. Partly, I just don't like the tune of this contemporary praise song. Um, Well, what used to be a contemporary praise song, it's not that contemporary anymore. Partly it was just the tune, but on higher reflection, I think I found it hard to internalize the words. Here are the first two verses of the psalm, Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? Now, while I understood what the psalm was driving at and recognized the importance of God in my life, I didn't feel my soul longing for God. I let the language of longing, thirsting, or yearning for God shut down any smaller desire to seek God that may have existed within me. The assumption that everyone who follows Jesus must be longing for a deeper and more intimate relationship with God just didn't ring true to my experience. Now, along with the assumption that Christians must want more of God's presence— we have also often assumed that the real problem is somehow related to proper spiritual technique. 
Books, sermons, blogs, devotionals, and all kinds of other resources have been produced to try to help people connect with God, focusing on the how-to, how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to think, how to have more faith. And I've actually preached many such sermons and created my fair share of resources. You could even argue that this podcast where you are listening to me read this book might actually be one of those resources. But this little book, Let God Be Present, is a book of reflections. It's not a how-to guide. Instead, it is offered as a way of shaking up your thinking about God's presence. I believe it is good and right to want God's presence, but there is something within me that is resistant to that notion. And Each part of this book contains reflections on biblical stories that draw out some of my struggle with the idea of God's presence. I offer this in the hopes that those who struggle with intimacy with God, and if you cringed at that phrase, intimacy with God, then please keep listening. This is for you. If you struggle with that as a concept, maybe you can have your mind and your heart turned toward a new posture of openness to God's presence. Of course, there are many people who do have a deep desire within them to enter into God's presence, and perhaps you're one of them. I hope that as you listen along, you will find some new ways of thinking about God's presence as well, and that you'll be reminded that there is far more to God's presence than only your personal devotional life. Because I think sometimes we get stuck in a trap thinking that God's presence is really only about me and my prayer life and all of that. So I want you to know up front that I'm actually not against a how-to approach. So I think things like resources and devotionals are good and wonderful tools, and uh, I hope this podcast is sometimes one of those tools. I do, however, have a problem when I see those resources being used as a way to only approach encounters with God on our own terms, rather than using them to open ourselves up to a divine encounter on God's terms. At the end of the book, uh, I actually offer a short reflection, which is far more how-to focused, though I don't really go very far with that. Eventually, we must turn to the questions of how we can experience God in our lives. My hope is to help you think through the pitfalls we might find ourselves in with letting God be present. The first reflection is about God being present with his people in the desert and Moses arguing with God about his continued presence with them on the way to the promised land. In this reflection, we ask whether we are desperate for the presence of God in the same way Moses was. He recognized that their journey would not work without God's presence. The second reflection is on the story of young Samuel hearing God calling his name in the middle of the night. We sometimes forget that God is present, not recognizing God's voice. There's a greater message in this rich and wonderful story, however. We'll explore what happens to us when God chooses to communicate with us and how we learn to listen. In the third part, we consider the story of Jesus calming the storm. Here, one of the main features of the story is the fear of the disciples. We will look at how when storms hit, we want God's presence, but in times of calm, we often do not want God. We will look at the story that follows the calm, where Jesus heals a man troubled by an unclean spirit. And this man, unlike the disciples, immediately recognizes Jesus for who he really is and is filled with joy at being changed by Jesus. 
do we want God's presence only to have a life that we want? Or are we willing to receive a God who moves us into a life of devotion and service? And that is the end of the introduction to let God be present. And I'm going to jump right in to the first reflection to part one, which is called God's presence, even when you might not want it, a reflection on Exodus chapters 31 through 33. God's tangible presence. Most of the time, for most of us, God's presence doesn't seem to mean much or matter much. If I'm out playing golf, I'm not thinking about the presence of God. Even in church meetings, I'm rarely aware of God's presence. When I'm waiting in line at a coffee shop, I'm not really thinking about where God is. God's presence tends to go unnoticed and unacknowledged. Intellectually, I know God is with me, but practically, in the way I live my life, I haven't always acted as though I need God, and I certainly don't feel God's presence at all times. Yet God's presence is immensely important. In the last few years, I have experienced the presence of God more frequently, but I must admit that there have only been three or four times in my life when something quite overwhelming has taken place, where, without any doubt on my part, God was communicating with me in a profound way. Perhaps you have never had such an experience, or perhaps it was so long ago that the memory of it has faded. I found that the further away in time I get from such experiences, the less impactful they can seem. In the moment, they may have been powerful, even life-changing, but in my cynical moments, I think, that was then and this is now. As time passes and experiences, an experience makes us jaded, doubt may creep in about whether such experiences were even real. Many people I know felt closest to God when they were younger, as a teenager or 20-something. They describe times when they experienced God in a tangible way at a camp or at a conference or rally. These experiences seemed to dry up as other commitments began to encroach. University or college classes, marriage, family, first careers, etc. Even for those who stay committed to Christ, faith oftentimes can begin to feel lukewarm. And when it had once been on fire in your youth, what made your faith so alive then and so humdrum now? What's more is that when you haven't had an experience of God in a long time, or at all, you may be skeptical of those who claim to hear from God regularly, or who get too touchy-feely about the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Maybe you are someone who would never describe yourself as quote-unquote spiritual. Maybe you are just an ordinary person who struggles with your faith among the myriad of other life struggles. As life piles up, it can be hard enough to sustain a belief in the existence of God or the plain reality that God is generally present in the world. Actually experiencing God is another matter entirely and feels impossible, perhaps not even desirable anymore. So here is the question. Do you want God's presence? Not the general, I know God is always there presence, but God's presence in a tangible way. Do you want to see evidence of God at work? Do you want to feel or know deep in your bones that God is truly with you? I don't know about you, but most days I don't think about it. And on the days that I do, I'm lucky if half of the time I would actually answer yes to these questions. 
comfort, confrontation, and awfulness. This is section two of part one of Let God Be Present. Our desire for God's presence can depend on a number of factors, from your mood to the external circumstances of your life. And sometimes God's presence means immeasurable comfort. God's presence can mean the difference between life and death, between love and indifference, between the depths of despair and the deepest level of joy. God's presence can mean not being alone when you are at your loneliness. God's presence can mean receiving the strength to continue when life is at its most dire. God's presence at these times is something we desperately grasp for, hoping that we can keep hold of it, or better, be held by the one who knows our suffering and struggle. But sometimes, God's presence confronts rather than comforts. Sometimes God's presence makes us keenly aware of being on the wrong track. Sometimes God's presence raises feelings of guilt and shame because we're still holding on to a grudge, or we know we keep hurting people, or we've... We know we've done little caring for others, or we've continued to repeat some of some other sinful or destructive pattern in our lives. God's reminding and confronting presence is usually something we don't want. God's presence gets described as awesome, but our experience of the presence of God might sometimes be best described as awful. Interestingly, these two words, awesome and awful, both used to mean essentially the same thing. Both originally conveyed a sense of being full of awe or wonder. The word awful reminds us that our experience of God causes different reactions within us. Sometimes the thought of being with God is too terrible for us. We cannot imagine standing in God's presence. Then, at other times, being with God is the most wonderful, awe-inspiring thing we can know. Section 3. With a particular people. In scripture, the presence of God is a major theme. God's fundamental promise to his people is that he will be with them as their God. God made this promise initially to Abraham. Along with the promise of his presence, God assured Abraham that he would have many descendants, and one day they would inherit a land to call their own. That promise seemed lost when the descendants of Abraham found themselves as slaves in Egypt. Under slavery, they worked seven days a week. They suffered, and in their pain, they cried out to God. And God raised up Moses, who was commissioned to proclaim the freedom of the chosen people and lead them out. Moses was reluctant at first, but God convinced him, assuring him that signs and wonders would be done and that God would be with him. Moses went to Egypt, and after plagues, signs, and wonders, the king of Egypt allowed the people to be freed. They went into the desert, ready to journey to the land of promise. They made it to the mountain called Sinai, God's holy mountain. Moses went up and received not just the Ten Commandments, as is often thought, but the entire law and all kinds of other instructions. These other instructions go into painstaking detail about a few things. Things like the construction of a tabernacle, the clothing that priests are supposed to wear, and instructions about how worship ought to take place in that tabernacle. Moses didn't just receive a moral code on the mountain. He also received a building manual and a worship book. 
Now, this was actually important because from this point on, as they traveled, God was going with them and the tabernacle would be God's home. So we've got the law, all of the purity instructions, and then all the tabernacle descriptions and all the regulations about priests. That's all given, and all of that was designed so that the people would know how to live with God in the midst of their community. Moses received these directives from God so that they would be able to experience and know God's presence daily. Section 4. It all goes wrong. Before Moses went up Mount Sinai, he had been the conduit between God and the people, so he spoke for God, sometimes with the assistance of his brother, Aaron. When Moses was around, great signs and wonders took place. When Moses was around, it was like God was around. Now, Moses goes up the mountain, and after 40 days and nights on the mountain, God told Moses that he had to go back down because the people were sinning without him there. They had forged a golden calf and had decided to worship it instead of God. Without Moses in their presence in the community, it took just 40 days to abandon the true God and set up something else to worship. This is first and foremost why an awareness of God's presence is important, because it doesn't take us long to replace God. God was intensely angry about the people's sin. He told Moses to get off the mountain so he could be left alone in his anger. God also told Moses that he intended to wipe everyone out and start over with just Moses. Moses could just be made into his own new chosen nation. This actually seems really out of character for God. But I can kind of understand the reaction. God had had this plan for his people for a really long time. God had built up the people from Abraham to this point. There had been times of great struggle, but then this rescue from Egypt, that had been the crowning moment where the people would finally understand who God was. God was a God of rescue and salvation out of slavery. God was now following through on the promises of old, leading his chosen ones through the desert to establish them in their land flowing with milk and honey. God had just given Moses all the instructions for how the people would live with God in their midst. And in less than six weeks, the people had pretty much abandoned God. So God was just ready to start over. But something remarkable happened on that mountain. Moses didn't leave God alone to be angry. Instead, Moses talked God down. He interceded. He reminded God of his promise to Abraham and pointed out that the Egyptians would look at things quite differently. The Egyptians, and presumably other nations, would not see a fair God with a righteous anger. They would think that God has evil intentions, leading his people into the desert only for them to die there. God's good name would be hurt in the world at large. And after Moses' intercession in Exodus 31.14, we read that God changed his mind. God relented and allowed the people to live. He would stay with his people. With God's assurance to stick with the people, Moses went down the mountain. 
But when he saw what was going on, he was astonished and furious. He smashed the covenant tablets. He grabbed the golden calf. He melted it down. And once the gold had cooled, he ground it into a powder that he then sprinkled into water and he forced everyone to drink it. And after that, Moses rallied the Levites to go throughout the camp, killing people. And 3,000 people were killed that day. Now, this is Exodus 31, and this story, it just hangs there terrible in our imagination. It is violent and horrific. And I don't think this story can easily be explained away. And honestly, it is the kind of story that people want to turn away from, or the kind of story that makes people turn away from God, or at least from the Old Testament. So why am I even mentioning it here? The reason is, is that I'm particularly interested in the conversation between God and Moses. We, we could just look at those uh, conversations and we could pretend that the slaughter of the 3,000 people never happened, but that would be irresponsible. This is part of the Bible and part of the wider story. It was intended to be remembered and to be retold. The Bible is not condoning what Moses and the Levites did. Exodus does not say that Moses was exacting God's vengeance. Moses acted on his own accord. Moses went from asking God to be gracious according to his promises to then ordering the slaughter of thousands of his own people in the blink of an eye. Whatever Moses witnessed and the way people were worshipping the golden calf must have been a terrible thing to see. My explanation is that Moses lost it. He was exacting and deliberate but he didn't know what to do with what he witnessed other than mass capital punishment. Moses' reaction is actually way beyond my imagination, but it does tell me something. It tells me that Moses is fallen just like the people, just like all of us. It tells me that God's chosen people were a mess from day one, and each individual was a mess. We're not talking about each person having a few little problems here. Something far worse and far more depraved is going on. One of the ways of translating the concept of sin from ancient Hebrew is missing the mark. I I love this understanding because it acknowledges that we try, but we don't quite get it all the time. But in this story, right at the high point of Israel's salvation, right as they are receiving the law, which becomes the basis for their binding together as a people and to their God, we see something so far past missing the mark. Sometimes sin is not to be missing the mark, it's better thought of as atrocity. Human beings don't just miss the mark. Sometimes we act like monsters. Whether it is missing the mark or deliberately transgressing, how can we stand in God's presence? The day after this absolutely horrendous ordeal, God tells Moses to take the people to the promised land, but tells him, an angel will go with you, but I won't. For the rest of their journey, there will be no more presence of God. It seems that the people will be literally God-forsaken, and well they should be. Section 5 of Part 1 In Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 and 13, Moses once again argues it out with God. While we might think the people, and especially Moses, after his genocidal orders, deserve to be forsaken by God, Moses simply can't imagine going forward through the desert without God's presence on the journey. Moses demands that God 
reveal the plan to him because he cannot see how anything less than God's presence will work. God told him an angel will guide them, but an angel won't cut it for Moses. It has to be God. Moses rightly recognizes that the only thing that is sure is God and the promises that God has made. It is precisely at his darkest, most subhuman hour that Moses needs the reassurance that God will not abandon him. Moses says to God, You've said you know me by name, and I have found favor in your sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways. That's Exodus 33, 12 and 13. He's basically saying, If we really have a solid relationship, God, then fill me in on your plan because I don't see it working. For good measure, Moses then adds, consider too that this nation is your people. In other words, God, you're responsible for them and I know you care about them. Like before, Moses, sorry, God, gives in to Moses. In Exodus 33, 14, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is such a simple statement for something so significant. Here we get what I believe are the ultimate consequences of God's presence. The Israelites are going to be on a long, wandering journey through the desert. It will be tiring. Every time they camp, they will have to set up this massive tabernacle for God, as well as all their own tents. They will do this for 40 years. But God says... I will go with you, and I will give you rest. The primary consequence of God's presence is the people receiving rest. This is vastly important for the Israelites because of where they have just been. The promise of resting is the, in the presence of God must be understood in the context of their, the story of their escape from slavery. They had no rest as slaves, that much is obvious, but even the Exodus story to this point has been marked by stressful hurry. The use of unleavened bread in the Passover celebration illustrates this well. The reason they used unleavened bread was because it was quick to make. The Passover is commemorated with this kind of bread because they left Egypt in a big hurry. After the escape from their oppressors, the Israelites experienced hunger and thirst in the desert. We learn that before the law was given, Moses acted as judge over the people, settling every dispute that arose among the vast numbers of people that were trying to live with one another in makeshift homes. They had no government, no laws, just Moses. And Moses' father-in-law goes to him and advised Moses at one point to appoint others to help him with the easier cases of judgment because, frankly, Moses was overworked, stressed, and nearing burnout. It seems there is no rest for the righteous. The implications of all this haste and hurry play out as the people wait for Moses to come down off the mountain. Haste breeds impatience. The people can't take a break. They can't wait. They forge ahead with their golden calf project. The people are out of step with the rhythm of creation itself. The command to rest that Moses will eventually deliver to the people is based on the rest that God took on the seventh day. All of this context points to the fact that the Sabbath rule is not about regulations. It is really a promise. And here we are reminded that it is intrinsically related to God's 
presence. It is possible that God gives a command to rest so we can get our own busyness, stress, and worry out of the way in order to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and get a glimpse of what the promise of rest is all about. Section 6. It won't work without God. A journey like the one before the Israelites was not going to prove particularly restful. Rest, however, is precisely what God promised when he said his presence will go with the people. Moses continues to argue, however, even though God has already agreed to Moses' request. Here we have Exodus 33, 15 and 16. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. This is Moses talking to God. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. This is like Moses saying, You better mean it, God. Your presence is the only thing that will make this work. I mean, how will we know your favor unless it is really you that is with us? And if you're with us, we will be distinct from everyone else. How awesome is that? I'm kind of paraphrasing Moses here. This last point is important because it is not that they will be distinct in order to be better than or to beat all the other nations. They will be distinct in order to be a light to the nations. God's presence with them is supposed to make it so that other people see them and understand who the real God is, so that when people see them and the way they live, they will be drawn to the one true God. Moses is saying that without God's presence, that just won't happen. And isn't that the truth? People are supposed to see us, followers of the living Christ, and be amazed at who the real God is. But if we are not experiencing the presence of God, if we are not thinking about where God is, if we are not aware of God's presence, then others seeing God in us is a pretty unlikely thing. Section 7. Wanting it. Moses was looking for some assurance from God. He was hoping that God would prove to him that he's serious about going with them. Moses kept arguing because he wanted assurance. He gets it in Exodus thirty-three seventeen, where it says, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses needed more than the promise of God's presence. He needed to see it and see it now. He was at the point of really wanting it. He wanted it because he was the one who had to lead the people. He wanted it for his people because he knew they would be the ones who would have to try and live out the holy life of work and rest in God's name for others to see and be drawn to the most beautiful, wonderful, awe-filled relationship there is. They would need to live this God-filled life. Moses needs more than assurance. He wants the presence of God. Do we want the presence of God? Section 8 of Part 1 of Let God Be Present. You can't have and know fully. Moses wants more and so asks God, Show me your glory, I pray, is what he says in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, And God 
responds in the very next two verses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he says, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. So God tells Moses that his goodness will pass before him and he will proclaim his name to him. He cannot, however, allow Moses to see his face. God can't give Moses everything he wants. See, Moses can't have full assurance in this life. God establishes himself as the one who cannot be fully grasped. This is the nature of God, built into the very name of God. God utters something that we don't know how to say anymore. It's the word Yahweh, which... Honestly, we don't know if we're saying it right. In most English Bibles, this Hebrew word that was too holy to speak aloud is replaced by the Lord. We make that replacement because the Jewish people make the same replacement. Anywhere they see yud Hey vav Hey, the Hebrew letters on the page, they say instead Adonai, Lord in Hebrew. No one quite knows the meaning of God's name, but God gives clues. He says, I am who I am, which can also mean I will be who I will be, or even I exist, or I am existence. In this instance, however, when Moses asks to behold God's glory, God plays with his own traditional formula for his name and says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is in control. God will reveal what God will reveal. God's grace is his to dispense, not ours. God's ways cannot be predicted or controlled by anyone but God. And in the end, God cannot be fully known. Following God, looking for God's presence, seeking God is never an act of knowing for sure. It is an act of faith. Section 9. Does it matter to you? When God threatened not to go with the people, their entire way of life that God had outlined for them would disappear. Moses immediately knew they would be lost without God's presence. I'm not sure that would happen for most of us. If God wasn't in our lives, would our way of life stop? Would our lifestyle be affected? If the answer is no, and I suspect it is in a lot of ways, we need to think long and hard about that. If you have made it this far listening, you have likely you likely have some sense that God ought to be part of your life. Imagine for a moment if you took God out of the equation of your life completely. What would happen? What would really happen? Now for some, this mental exercise makes them give up on faith in the idea of God entirely. Why are we bothering at all, they might say. This exercise convinces them that God isn't really relevant or that God doesn't make a big difference. But the problem with giving up on God because he doesn't seem relevant is that we have missed a major warning sign. If God appears irrelevant to your life, it may simply mean that your life is more off track than you want to believe 
The thing is, we all, at certain times in our lives, choose to set the true God to one side in favor of much more manageable gods, like our jobs, our families, sports, our own egos. If you had asked the Hebrews whether they needed the one true God while Moses was up on the mountain, they would have said, no, we've already made our own God. They were self-sufficient. This should immediately remind us of ourselves. Section 10. Determined to meet God. A beginning place might be to think about the places in your life where the presence of God is more evident. I do not mean for you to think about things like your family or friends or how much they mean to you and how that must mean that God is present there. Instead, ask yourself when you really know God is present. Where are you when you actually experience God? What kinds of things are you doing? And if you can't imagine a time when you do experience God, perhaps there is a time where you feel you are getting close. Maybe there is a time when something is happening, but you aren't quite sure if it is real, or if you believe it, or if you want to let yourself go there. I want to encourage you to simply start there. Start seeking those times. Perhaps it's during a worship service at a church, or maybe at a Bible study. Maybe it's when you walk in a park, or when you pray with one or two others, or just when you have a good conversation about spiritual matters. Take a moment and really think about it. When is it? What are you doing? And from there, you can begin to develop more regular practices that honestly help you be much more open to the presence of God. You must commit, though, to remembering to want the presence of God. Section 11. God's presence with you for others. If you are like me, wanting the presence of God for yourself may not be much of a motivating factor. My own seeking of God is actually related to the impact that my own God-filled life can have on others. I hinted at this earlier, but want to make this much more explicit. When God threatened to wipe out his own people, Moses pointed out that this would have a detrimental effect on God's name among other nations. Moses also reminded God about how they needed his presence in order to be a distinct people on the earth. Part of God's plan for his people has always been for them to be lights to others. Without God's presence in our lives, it is near impossible for others to be drawn to God through us. But this is one of God's primary goals for us. This doesn't mean you have to have it all figured out. As mentioned earlier, seeking and experience the presence of God is never an act of knowing for sure. We are called to lives of faith. What is amazing is that this isn't actually a posture of knowing everything about God and God's presence that draws others to God. Rather, it is a posture of trust and faith. People see a deep trust in God and marvel at it because it is so different from other things we see in our world. The thing is, other people will never accidentally see your trust in God. It must be lived out and put on display. The ancient Israelites were given all kinds of instructions about building a tabernacle, worshipping, and living in a particular way. They were given outward signs in which to participate to remind them of the continual presence of God among them. We, too, must engage in some core practices to help us truly experience the presence of God, the rest that comes with it, and the life-changing nature of it all, not just for us, but for those who see God at work in us.
section 12 of part one of Let God Be Present. Take the extra step. If you are able to think about times when you connect with God, you are already a long way along the path of a growing faith. You are well on your way to God being really present in your life on a regular basis. You also have something to share with others in your life because many people know very little about the presence of God. You are encouraged to take an extra step. Think of someone in your life who you would invite to share in whatever activity you thought of when you come closest to experiencing God's presence and begin by praying for them. You don't need to tell them that you're praying for them. It may be better with some people if you don't tell them. After a bit of praying, invite them along. This may seem daunting, but think about what you are inviting that person into. You know of a place where you can encounter the creator of the universe, an activity that helps you experience the presence of one who loves unconditionally. You know how to get in touch with one who befriends sinners and outcasts, addicts and hypocrites. You are a child of an ever-loving parent, and you have a guide who is also your brother. You know of one who laid down his life for you. You have this knowledge, and you know people who don't. As the occasion arises to offer people the opportunity to join you as you seek God, take that opportunity, seize that opportunity to share God's presence with others. And this is the end of part one of Let God Be Present. Thank you so much for listening to this, and I hope you uh, move on to the next part and to part two.